1: Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler share with you the pathway to becoming a top leader in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler.
2: Welcome to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers. I'm Dr. Raleigh Nadler. We have Dr. Kathy Greenberg as my co-host here. And between Kathy and I, we have helped thousands of leaders and executives to perform in the top 10%. We always try to bring you interesting, fascinating folks, and both Kathy and I are very excited that we have Dr. Serena Pivier, uh, who just wrote a book, and actually we'll talk to him about he's written a couple books about how he's been so prolific, but the book we're going to be focusing on is Your Brain and Business, and Dr. Pele is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and his new book, Your Brain and Business, it's subtitle, The Neuroscience of Great Leaders. It was peer-reviewed by the Wharton Business School and has just been released in March of this year, so it's kind of hot off the press. He's highly regarded as a motivational speaker who's able to explain the science behind seemingly non-rational phenomena. He's been uh, uh, on many media appearances, been featured in the Boston Globe, uh, Oprah Radio, Martha Stewart Holt. Uh, living, at Cosmoto- cosmopolitan, Fox News, CNN. He's been invited to speak on the science behind the law of attraction on Fox News, and with that, we'll be teaching a six-week course on putting the science to work for you to achieve your lifelong dreams at the University of Attraction. So, at the end, we'll also ask him a little bit about some of that. And let me tell you about my co-host, uh, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, and. We know that uh, Kathy has authored multiple books on the science of happiness, including What Happy Companies Know. Her latest number one bestseller is What Happy Working Mothers Know. And she talks about her proven happiness equals profit strategies to businesses. She touches millions of lives as a speaker, uh, TV and radio and media personality. And she's founded the renowned uh, executive consultancy H2C Leadership Happy Companies, Healthy People. She currently offers friendly tips and tools to be your best at work and at home on ABC's The Morning Blend. And she has a new uh, web TV show, Your Happiness Now. So Kathy's website is h2cleadership.com, where you can get free downloads and access for your true talents uh, for happiness and job satisfaction. Kathy, welcome.
3: Thanks, Riley. I'm very, very excited to talk with Dr. Pile today about uh, the the whole brain and the brain at work and the brain in business, because as you know, neuroscience is one of my hotspots, so I'm really dying to get going. But I want our audience who uh, may not know who you are, although we have a lot of return listeners, um, you know, I really want to just give them a little introduction to you to make sure that we're all on a level playing field here and they know that they're working with a highly trained group of professionals during the show today, so they should be Really excited to hear um, from Dr. Pile and also from you. Uh, Dr. Raleigh Nadler is a master-level certified executive coach. And let me impress upon you, the audience, that there are only about 700 of those worldwide. So Raleigh is a rare commodity. He's also a psychologist, a corporate leadership, and team trainer. And Dr. Nadler brings his legendary expertise in emotional intelligence to all of his keynotes, consulting, coaching, and development programs. You know, Relly's newest top-ranked book, Leading with Emotional Intelligence, provides hundreds of tools and strategies to develop star performers across industries and hopefully at your organization as well. His highly respected work is the focus of countless business journals, blogs, and online news features, and his programs are a mainstay at leading Fortune 500 companies. You can visit him at com, and pick up free downloads to access your best performance through emotional intelligence. So, Raleigh, thank you for being
2: my partner in this endeavor. Sure. Well, Kathy, let me uh, tell you just a little bit about kind of the why of, of Leadership News and, and our audience. And Dr. PA am I saying that right, Dr. p a Pia, Yep. Yeah. Pia. Dr. Pille, um is also an executive coach, aside from being an MD, and also is a uh, MCC, Master Certified Coach. So we're really getting some uh, expertise here. And one of the reasons why we talk about leaders so much in organizations, 40% of organizations say that they'll be experiencing a significant gap in the number of skilled or trained leaders available for them. So we try to give you tips here about what you can do to help train some of those leaders. And there's a uh, big brain drain happening. One is that we've lost a lot of jobs because of the Great Recession. Two, we have the retiring baby boomers who are leaving and leaving a shortfall of about 10 million workers. And then three, with the Generation X and Gen Y coming in, it's been documented that they have lower emotional intelligence than, let's say, the boomers. because of just more face time, you know, with a computer screen or their phone versus face to face time, so that's what we, Kathy and I, call uh, the brain drain. And the other thing that's important, and why we talk about leadership so much, is that leaders have anywhere from 50 to 70 percent influence over the climate of the team. And so we like to say, the leader is the emotional thermostat. They're the most contagious person. So the better our leaders are, the more. Uh, effective they will be, but so will their team. And, Kathy, maybe before we move on, you can say a little bit about uh, the set point in regards to happiness.
3: Well, you know, in all of our shows, really, we try to bring our audience information that will make their lives better, hopefully improve their overall performance and that of their organization, uh, because as you so well articulate in each and every one of our programs, leaders are the emotional thermostat but they also don't realize that they have a set point and that set point relates to one's happiness or as Dr. Seligman would like to say well-being and the whole happiness set point is like weight or eye color for example and it doesn't mean that we're stuck with it it means that we can in fact make choices on how to apply it and we can extend it and the best news is that forty percent pardon me, forty percent of that is influenced by your habits and your behaviors. So at Leadership Development News in every one of our programs, we try to give you some tips and tools to do just that. And today we're gonna to hopefully increase your set point on using your brain so that you can increase both your valuable insights and your corporation's profitability, as I like to say. Happiness equals profit.
2: Well, thanks, uh, Kathy. So let me just say a, uh, a few more words about Dr. P- uh, Pile, and then we're going to bring him on and, and ask him about his book and all the research he's done. So uh, Dr. Pile, after graduating as the, as the top medical student at, at Harvard uh, during his residency and won, won one of the top three awards for psychiatry residency in the U.S. So obviously, you know, very, very smart man we're going to talk with. He directed the Outpatient Anxiety Disorders Program at McLean Hospital, Harvard's largest psychiatric hospital, and also completed 17 years of a nationally funded brain imaging research. So that's a long time. I mean, it's 17 years. Uh, the first book he wrote, Life Unlocked, Seven Revolutionary Lessons to Overcome Fear, was uh, came out in August and was w- voted one of the five Uh, finalist in the Books for a Better Life in the Motivational Category. He uh, is able to apply his methodology to business environment, and that's what I'm very interested in. I'm sure, Kathy, you also, and uh, our listeners as well, and has been invited to speak on related topics in New York, California, Washington, D.C., Toronto, Switzerland, Greece, Singapore. Business clients have included the World Bank, uh, Novartis, Gen Zim and McKenzie. And across the board, Dr. Pile is known for bringing brain science to life in the simplest terms uh, that he then translates into recommended action steps that you can take. Working with people in everyday life for most of his career, uh, the unique contributions of Dr. Pile uh, that continue to spark interest all over the world are vividly demonstrated. And he also has a book, The Science Behind the Law of Attraction. So, Dr. um, Three books in the last year, uh, so very, very prolific, and it's really around your brain and business that would be most interested, so welcome to the call. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
3: One of the things that we'd
2: like to start off with is just a question, you know, who has influenced you the most in some of your work, and then we'll get into some of your book issues.
4: You know, it's, it's really difficult to think about influences because I think I've just been really fortunate throughout my life. Um, and I think my influences have stemmed from, you know, historical figures um, like like the Renaissance men, like Ben Franklin, uh, da Vinci, um, you know, all the way through to more contemporary people like Richard Branson and Ratan Tata. And then there have been people who have been my mentors at Harvard and then my own family. And I think part of what I've really enjoyed – Uh, in terms of being influenced by all these different people, is that one of the main messages that I think I got from the Renaissance thinkers that was then supported by people in my personal life is that our society has a certain obsession with focus. And I think that there's uh, a lot to be said about focus, and there's a lot to be said about uh, looking at one thing in depth so that you understand it. But I think that there's also a tremendous amount that can be said uh, for integration. And uh, in my own life, you know, having done psychiatry and then executive coaching and brain science, uh, and now, you know, working and teaching at Harvard Medical School and also at Harvard Business School, I find that, that being in a position where I can integrate um, mm. is particularly inspiring to me. And so whenever I, I come across people who have run more than one company or worked in more than one area, uh, I find that uh, particularly engaging.
2: So so that's fascinating, so the integration process, and I think that's kind of what both Kathy and I are very interested in that we bring to our clients. Maybe it happens with age and maturity. You start kind of trying to pull all the information together. Y- your book is phenomenal um, because you really have all the key questions that that pinpoint to different parts of the brain. So for any of our listeners there, um, it would be really worthwhile to get a hold of it. So we'll be back in, in just a moment. Um, and, and talk more about the book and talk with Dr. P.A. This is uh, Leadership Development News, and we'll be right back.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award-winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com. Or, for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to leadership development news, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at one 866 472 5790 That number again is one 866 472 5790 Now let's get back to the show.
3: news, we're having a very exciting conversation with Dr. Serini Pele on your brain and business. So um, let me ask you, as somebody who is a behavioral scientist, as I am, someone who worked in business, as you know, I was a partner in two large consulting firms, and somebody who so believes in what you're doing, can you explain to our audience, what does the brain have to do with business? Other than just kind of running our body and functioning is is this just a theory or do we know now that it actually matters?
4: I think that's a great question um, kathy and, and you know one of the things but I think it's counterintuitive about it, is that whenever we talk about brain science, you know, it sounds like it belongs in the medical field. And when we talk about business, it sounds like it belongs to a completely different field altogether. But I think as you and Relly were sort of emphasizing earlier on, um, really at the core of any business uh, are people. And when we think about people, we we think about people at all levels of a corporation. We think about people having to execute certain strategies. The reality is that people are are really the life force of any business. Um, And so the connection between the brain and business is not really just theoretical, because the reality is that the more we understand about the brain, the more we're going to understand about people. Because businesses are, are essentially run by people, and people are essentially run by their brains. And so if we understand what is going on in the brain, both at a conscious and an unconscious level, we can really have a completely new toolkit in addition to observing what happens in the context of organizational psychology. So... At the most basic level, I think that the brain is really relevant, because when we understand what is going on in the brain, we understand what is directing people. And I think most consulting companies will say, for example, that one of the biggest challenges they face is, even after they come up with brilliant strategies, a lot of times it's really difficult to execute these. And so one of the the questions that comes up is, well, why is it so difficult to execute such a great strategy? And I think that if we just look at the conscious variables and we look at what's on the piece of paper, it all seems pretty obvious. But clearly there's something else other than what's going on consciously that's directing people within the business environment. And I think one of the major contributions that brain science has is apart from repackaging information, which I think can be extremely helpful because you're eventually reframing information. Um, Brain science also provides uh, a lot of insight about what's going on unconsciously in a way that can actually impact our behavior. So uh, you know, I hope that that explains where I'm coming from. But where I'm coming from essentially is that businesses are about people and that people are run by their brains and that the more we understand brains, the better we'll understand people and the better we'll understand what's going on in the running of a business.
2: And I think... Uh, for executives that I see in it and Dr. Pelet's probably the same thing for you, uh, most of them are really interested and they get a little bit more engaged when you can talk about the brain because it 's kind of that that black box and so um just like you said, repackaging, reframing some of the leadership stuff from the brain you know I find really just enhances what I do as a as a uh, coach and a trainer well, one of the things we we also wanted to ask you last week we uh, interviewed Martin Seligman about his new book, Flourish, and Positive Psychology, and there's a lot kind of going on about positive psychology, and for some people it may it may kind of seem faddish, um, but what does brain science teach us about positive thinking?
4: You know, I think, uh, just right of the bat, I guess I should say that I'm a radical optimist, and I... Uh, I'm I'm an optimist, I think, probably in a different way uh, than people might initially imagine. Um, Positive thinking, I think, is really a a very important uh, variable when it comes to running a business, Um, and we can go into the details of that if you're interested um, at a later point. But I think one of the biggest challenges we face in businesses today is that when you enter a business in this economic environment and you start talking about positive thinking, you see eyes rolling and you see people start to say, who's this optimist, where's he been living, has he been on this planet? Um, And and I understand where they're coming from, because if the brain is simply left to respond to what's going on in the environment, the brain goes into reactive mode, and then the brain starts processing fear, starts processing threat. It starts to respond to all the difficult things that are going on in the world. Now, the reality is that it's very difficult, because um, when the brain response to what's uh, what what's going on in, in, in the environment the attentional center is actually um, the, the attentional center um, is, is actually all occupied by negative thoughts which means that if you have something like ten units of attention it's very difficult to actually um, use any any anything else in your attentional center to focus on things that you need to do so what actually happens is that the brain's attentional center is then mostly directed toward threat, and there's very little attention left for you to pay attention to the things that you need to do. Um, So one of the reasons that I believe that positive thinking is really important is that we need to release the brain's attentional center. And, you know, there are a number of different parts of the brain that are responsible uh, for attention. The frontal parietal cortex is is really one of the main circuits um, that that. Um, that that executes attention. Um, And once we're able to be positive, what, what we're actually able to do is free up the attention that we need to solve some problems. So I think at the most basic level, one of the things that I feel is that if we let our brain simply be taken over by the negative things that are going on in the world, what we're doing is allowing the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, to be overactivated, And because the amygdala is connected to the prefrontal cortex in the brain, um, the amygdala starts to disrupt what's going on in the thinking centers of the brain, and we're not able to do what we need to do. Uh, as a result of that, what we need to do is stabilize the frontal cortex, or decrease the activation in the amygdala, and positive thinking helps to do both of those things. Um, another thing that we actually know is that optimism itself can actually displace fear from the amygdala, because the amygdala is essentially an emotion processor, um, and it will it will process fear over and above everything else. But mm-hmm. If if there is genuine optimism, and especially positive thinking about the future, fear can actually be displaced from the front of the line, and this positive uh, information can actually be processed. So the practical element about the positive thinking is that it frees up the frontal cortex, which then allows you to make decisions, it allows you to assess risks. It allows you to be innovative. And while I think there is the reality of negativity that's going on, there's also the reality of choice. We have a choice about what we pay attention to. And if we really care about ourselves and the people that we're working with and the people we're working for, it's important for us to take control of this and to say, you know what, I know that there are a lot of horrible things going on in the world right now. I know that the economy is tanking. But for now what I'm going to do is focus on problem-solving. Because we need to spend as much time focusing on solving problems rather than simply focusing on the problems themselves. You know, from, a, just from, a, from an overarching perspective, one of the um, ways that I talk about this is in terms of the possibility brain. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, it's really not realistic, uh, and they talk in terms of probability. But nothing exceptional has ever been highly probable. And this is something that I would really like the listeners to think about, because if we constantly make our, our decisions in life based on what's probable, we're actually leaving out something exceptional from our lives. And so I see optimism as something that, that is really brain permission. It basically says to the brain, I think something's possible. I may not know the solution. I don't know how to get there. But because I think it's possible, I think you should stay online. And so the brain does stay online, and the the particular part of the brain uh, that is important in this process is the posterior parietal cortex, which is also the GPS of the brain. And it essentially stays online and tries to navigate you toward where you need to go to. But if you say to the brain, uh, you know, this is just impossible, it's highly improbable, I really need to give up on this, nothing good's going to come of this, essentially you're telling the brain to go to sleep. And so the brain's navigator, the GPS goes to sleep, and you're not able to actually facilitate the actions that you need to facilitate. Because remember, even if we don't know the solutions to our problems consciously, the unconscious brain is incredibly powerful. And because it is so powerful, it can actually come up with a solution if you give it permission to do this. And so at that level, I think that positive thinking is really about brain permission, or unconscious brain, to start coming up with possibilities to solve the problems that you have in life.
3: So, Serene, let me ask you something. Using that as a launching pad for the next question, um, you say that a recent study showed that several companies that had relatively small marketing budgets had really big profits because they actually focused on the human elements um, that you just described, and relationships. Can you explain what the brain has to do with this and what it's actually doing?
4: Absolutely. You know, what, what was remarkable about that study was that when uh, the investigators looked to see what was common amongst all of these companies that had such small marketing budgets uh, but seemed to be making huge net profits, what they found was that at a thematic level, every company uh, in that group was actually dedicated to conscious leadership and conscious capitalism. The company still wanted to make money, but they wanted to make money while they were acknowledging the human element. Now, the way that this makes sense is that if you're trying to make money, uh, one of the one of the most important things is, is to be able to be efficient in executing the strategies that you've come up with. But if your brain is taken over by fear or taken over by loneliness or taken over by prejudice or mistrust, the brain actually starts to slow down. So. The brain, in a situation of fear, for example, will, um, will, will, will actually result in the amygdala being activated, and this will then disrupt the prefrontal cortex, which disrupts thinking. If you think about loneliness, you know, in companies where people are excluded, which is not like these companies, uh, when, com- when people are excluded, the lonely brain actually has a particular way of responding. People who are lonely tend to not activate the reward center to pleasant people, but actually, actually activate it more to things. And they also have brains that are hypersensitive. To fear and threat. So, when we're excluding people in the work environment, essentially what we're doing is reducing the activation of the reward center of the brain. And as a result of that, you're actually reducing a lot of the motivational forces that can get that work done. And it's very similar uh, when it comes to trust, because trust has the exact opposite effect on the amygdala as fear. Whereas fear increases amygdala activation, trust actually decreases amygdala activation. And studies have shown that high trust companies can actually outperform low trust companies by up to 300%. And part of that is that trust releases the front by decreasing amygdala activation. It releases the frontal lobe to do the work that it needs to do efficiently. When it comes to prejudice, um, prejudice actually can be either conscious or unconscious. And by prejudice, I'm referring to all kinds of prejudice. Prejudice about you know, people who are too optimistic or too pessimistic, prejudice in terms of gender, prejudice in terms of race. You know, when, we're, when we exclude people, what, one of the things I think that we need to uh, really recognize in the world is that regardless of who we are, the way that the brain is wired is that we often are prejudiced about one or more things. And what the studies have shown is that when you look at the correlation between amygdala activation and degrees of prejudice, um, if you have explicit prejudice, meaning prejudice that you know you have, um, this explicit prejudice simply does not correlate with amygdala activation at all. Uh, But if people have implicit prejudice, and we can measure this using a test known as the implicit association test or the IAT which is a really fun test to take. You can take it free online, um, and, and it will actually tell you what, you what you might be prejudiced about. There's
3: oh, and impl- what is that website?
4: Um, it's, it, the, you would Google Implicit Association Test. Okay. And, and it, gives you, it gives you the opportunity to uh, check out your, your own prejudices. Um, and, and what you can then see is that imp- uh, the studies show that implicit prejudice often correlates with amygdala activation, suggesting that one of the sources of prejudice may actually be fear you know we, we, when you think about it in terms of how women are sort of viewed in the workplace for example you know if there's something unfamiliar if there's an emotionality that women that people generalize to women and if there isn't that emotionality this lack of emotionality that people generalize to men clearly both of those ways of being are going to be unfamiliar and they're going to create some level of fear and so the prejudice is going to arise and the reason we care about this in the business environment is not because we necessarily want to be on some kind of moral high ground, but because we want the brains of the people who are within the business to be functioning in an optimal way. So if we promote these kinds of prejudices, the brain is in a state of constant chaos, trying to deal with this unconscious fear, trying to deal with this unconscious prejudice that's disrupting its ability to carry out its tasks. And in these studies, Uh, what they found was that these particular companies were actually engaged with the public on the public's terms. So they thought about things that were socially valuable. They thought about missions that could actually improve the quality of life of people. And by doing that, they actually were able to gain the trust of people who who, who became their customers, and then they developed customer loyalty. So there wasn't that much of a need to do marketing because the initial customers who were drawn to them actually stuck. And they stuck because they were being open, they were being generous, and they cared about those people. And I think in the older models of capitalism, people feel like you've got to make money, and to make money you've got to get away with mm-hmm. them. Whereas in a new capitalism, really what we're interested in is providing a service that's valuable in exchange for money.
2: So, Serena, this is uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, hopefully our listeners are, are getting this, that their brains are uh, – are being influenced whether they're being proactive about it or not with their employees. So we want to come back uh, and hear more about your you know fascinating research and your work and we're going to go to the next break. This is Leadership Development News and we'll be right back.
0: For free tips and downloads, visit Kathy's award-winning book site, WhatHappyWorkingMothersKnow.com. Or for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results for your business, visit Kathy Greenberg at H2CLeadership.com. That's H2CLeadership.com.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show.
2: Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with Dr. Pile and his new book, Your Brain in Business, The Neuroscience of Great Leaders. I've been... uh, coming through it, and it's, it's very, very, very practical. One of the things that I thought, uh, Serena, that was just interesting, you know, you talked about kind of the, the default, in a sense, for the brain is to focus on what's, you know, what's not going right and kind of that antenna. But then often in trainings, I talk to people about what's the manager default. Well, the manager default is to find fault. So now you've got two brains that are zeroing in, the boss and the leader, to find fault. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think uh, you know that's where we're trying to get back to, this conscious leadership, and maybe that the leader doesn't try to find fault first.
4: Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think one of the things um, that I feel sympathetic towards is that particular idea because in a lot of the helping professions, you're always looking to make a diagnosis of some kind so that you can try to be helpful. So I understand that habit, and I think what managers need to understand is that if they're looking to make a change in their lives, not to necessarily blame themselves for finding fault or expect that overnight they're going to suddenly stop finding fault with people, but to recognize that their brains have been conditioned. They've been conditioned pathways. There are now habit circuits that have been activated that essentially get the brain to operate in this way, because the brain is seeking threat, and it's seeking, it's it's trying to figure out if something doesn't make sense. But when the brain is in this mode and seeking out problems, you often find it, you know, because in, in, essentially what you look for, you will find. So if we're constantly looking for fault only, you will find a ton of faults. But where you lose out is you're not going to be able to leverage the strengths of people. Because all human beings have faults, and all human beings have a ton of strengths. But not all of those human beings are able to access those strengths. So I think managers would probably be well-served to recognize that apart from finding out what the faults are and asking people to correct them, to also see what the strengths are and ask people to leverage them. And the way that that translates into brain science is that if we're constantly seeking out faults, then what we're doing is we're creating an atmosphere of fear. So you're activating the amygdala of the people who are at work. It's disrupting their own uh, efficiency because it's disrupting their prefrontal cortex. But in addition, because of mirror neurons, which essentially uh, mirror other people's emotions, you're spreading this atmosphere of negativity at work because our brains reflect uh, and mirror the emotions of other people. And so you're creating one big inefficient group um, so the idea here is not to necessarily then switch that around and decide to become the most loving person in the world, but to recognize that when you focus your attention on the strengths of people, you educate them and you illuminate something about them that is particularly helpful. And if we're managing people, part of the thing we want to do is to be able to manage their attention. We want to manage their brain's attention because, in all likelihood, their brains are also focusing on their faults. They're just not able to do anything about it. But if you can work with a manager who has the sensibility to help you refocus your attention on your strengths, by focusing your attention on your strengths, you might actually be able to leverage that, and one of the things I often say to people is, "What you feed will grow, and if you feed your strengths with attention, your strengths will grow."
2: That's great. So I'm just writing that down. What you feed will grow. Well, let's let's talk about kind of this the inner relationship, um, you know, this collective leadership, and isn't it in in reality usually one person makes a makes a decision. Eventually, you know, it could be the leaders get input from others. Uh, does brain science back up the notion that that all collective leadership matters in business?
4: Well, yes, you know, the psychological research has essentially uh, shown us quite recently that there's a factor which they call the C factor which is an intelligence factor that comes from a group that is greater than the sum of individual intelligences in the group and it's also greater than the maximum intelligence in the group which suggests that when a group works effectively and that group can work collectively and can get the task done. By the same token, uh, there are also many studies that show that certain groups work inefficiently. So I think it's important to emphasize that you have to have the right kind of group to work in a collective way. But at the level of brain science, I think uh, the idea of collective leadership is really, it's not even a choice. It's really a reality, because Uh if you think about it, you know, as, as human beings, we're actually open to the world. We have eyes, we have ears, we have a mouth. We're not cut off from the world. And so because we are not cut off from the world and we are perceiving all the time, these perceptions eventually reach the brain. And so what someone else says in a group can, is always in your brain, and what you're saying in a group is always in someone else's brain. So to assume that leadership is localized to one individual, I think it's naive because we are influencing each other all the time at the brain level, and as I said earlier, uh, one of the systems that comes into play uh, is the mirror neuron system, which is a, a very extensive uh, system of neurons that are uh, uh, that operate between the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the temporal lobe. And these particular neurons represent the emotions and intentions and actions of people, often outside of their immediate consciousness. So we have we are privy to a lot of unconscious information before we even know it. And I think if we can just recognize that collective leadership is important, while also recognizing that eventually there often is one person who needs to make a decision, Uh, just because one person needs to make a decision does not mean that the opinions of everybody should not be contributing toward that. And I think a, a really ideal state to strive for is where a decision is not made in an, in an executive way, but evolves to its natural point where it seems like it is the right thing to do because everybody is on the same page, because everybody has been reaching out and taking in mm-hmm. to the point that the group has, that every person in the group has influenced another person.
2: You know, in, in, in some of the work that you do and some of the work I do, um, I would think, especially this collective, and you call it the C factor, the intelligence factor. Is that right? right. I think that's very rare in groups that I've seen, you know, mostly because of some of the leadership and and maybe not having the skilled leader. Uh, And I would think it's all, I don't know what the opposite of the C factor is. Maybe I'll ask you. Often I think, and I say this to groups, the intelligence goes down when you get all these people because of some of the uh, inability of, of looking at differences, honoring differences, really hearing what someone else has to say versus only promoting what you have to say. So, is there an opposite of the C factor, or is it where the actually the i q of the group goes down if it 's not well led?
4: There actually have been studies that have shown that um, so so there can be groups where uh, you know it, for example, a lot of times we get people who are naysayers on a group right. Uh, And and when you have a naysayer in a group just for the sake of being a naysayer, it's very difficult because it it basically uh, puts you in a stalemate position because you feel like, well, you know, there's no way that I can actually move, and it stalls the process of the group. Now, I believe that people should have different opinions, but I think one of the things is to be united by a common goal. So if you don't believe in a particular strategy, I think that's fine, but I think it's important to be authentically connected to a common goal. So. You know, just to reflect back on your question, I think that uh, the opposite definitely does occur, and a lot of groups can actually slow down a process. So it's mm-hmm. important when you're in a group to have someone keeping an eye on whether this group process is just for the sake of everybody feeling better about themselves, or whether it's actually moving the business agenda forward.
2: Okay, good, good. Well, I want to you know, hit you on a couple of these other topics. Um, what about uh, intuition? You know, is is there a, a brain basis for intuition? I know there's been studies that I've seen where they really kind of study the moment of kind of, it, of, a, of an aha. And I don't know if you'd say that is part of the intuit, intuition or kind of a parallel process.
4: There, there, there is. And the, the, the terminology that's used in the scientific literature is preemptive cognition. And essentially what this is, is the ability to show using brain imaging that the brain starts to know unconsciously before you know consciously. And so if there is an intuition you often have the information registered inside of you. You may even respond to it before you know it consciously. Mm. And one of the parts of the brain that, um, that is actually affected by this is the brain's navigator or the GPS, which is the posterior parietal cortex. Uh, because the navigator gets information from conscious and unconscious sources, and when, the, when there's an unconscious awareness of something, before you become consciously aware of it, the navigator can actually register it and can make you start to move. And all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, how come I'm making this decision? How come I'm calling this person? And and part of it is, even if you don't know that consciously, what I would say to people is, if you suddenly catch yourself in the midst of some kind of automatic action that you don't understand, rather than dispel with that action, simply ask yourself, well, if I had to hypothesize why my brain is doing this, what would be the potential reason?
2: Huh. Okay. And for people... Uh... Learning how to kind of get in touch with that intuition, I mean, it kind of happens. Some people, it may be kind of on the, it may be on the mute button. Other people, it's, it's very loud volume. Is there, is there some different ways to, to tap into that?
4: I think it's, a, yes, I, I, I think that there are a lot of ways to tap into that. I think one of the things is to give yourself permission, um, both when you're alone and in groups to make associations that you don't immediately um, understand. So with the, the first thing I would say to people often is, tell me what you feel about a particular situation, even if you can't justify it at all. And as with everything that I've said so far, I really believe that, that I, one of the things I don't want to do is to create this romantic idea that if you just know the organizational psychology or you just know the brain science, once you know it, you can change it overnight. Right. I think this is about rewiring the brain. Uh-huh. So it's really about taking time And practicing it and it's the same thing with intuition with intuition you can practice it it's a question of noticing yourself practicing noticing yourself and being okay about being wrong because a lot of times people have that intuition button on on mute is because they're afraid of being wrong because they can't justify it rationally which is sort of paradoxical because a lot of times thinking is not necessarily true it's just available for you to see even if it's distorted
2: okay you know, one of the questions that has come up for me, and, uh, and I'm sure it's had come up for you in coaching, often someone's development plan. They talk about that they need to be a little bit more strategic. You know, and that's always kind of a buzzword. You're too tactical. You need to be a little bit strategic. It may relate to kind of the part we want to talk about is kind of innovation. And often, what I end up saying is, it's really is a thinking process that in their brain. This is kind of more strategic, but I think relates to what you're going to say about innovation. There are certain parts of, of questions in their brain they just don't go to. It's like a destination that they don't travel to enough. And then trying to work with them, and it's usually around questions and stuff, is that they need to travel to certain parts of that brain. How would, how would you respond to that, you know, if someone, let's say, you know, one of their development issues needs to be more strategic?
4: Well, you know, I think that sometimes things need to be more strategic and sometimes they need to be less strategic. And as a, just as a guiding principle, I think that it's important to have an exploratory process first and then once there's a genuine exploratory process to actually find a way to um, reduce that to the strategy, which eventually will need to be executed. But I think in the exploratory phase is where people often need to practice. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the things people can do is take two seemingly counterintuitively associated ideas and ask themselves, how can I connect them? Because the basis of innovation from a psychological um, research standpoint is that it's essentially to take two ideas,
2: which right.
4: seem like they're not necessarily related, and then ask yourself, how can I connect them? And the example that I like to use of this is, you know, a, a modern gadget. You know, who would have, you know, if you had to ask yourself, what's the connection between email, telephone, um, listening to a song, recording your voice, and looking at the Internet, you might say, well, you know, these are all in different gadgets. There's just no way. You know, that's how I think about them. But someone in the world decided, you know what, these are all forms of communication, and these are all forms of connection. And I wonder if if we get a connection device, can we have them all in the same place?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And this kind of reasoning is what we call analogical reasoning, and it's the basis of, of intuition, of, of innovation. And, and, and it reflects in a part of the brain which is at the very front of the brain called the frontal polar cortex. And the greater the degree of connection between these seemingly uh, disparate ideas, the greater the frontal polar cortex activation.
2: And you said that's the frontal polar? Frontal polar cortex. Okay. Right. So it sounds like, and I know there's been, you know, a fair amount of kind of exercises and stuff where, where people can, can practice that almost as a warm-up, you know, uh... How How is uh, tree and car the same? And you kind of go through that over and over, and it really is almost kind of practicing that, that muscle of, of that linkage that you're saying, or I guess that brain the brain connections.
4: Yes, absolutely. You know, one, one of the examples i like to give just to illustrate how seemingly strangely our brain processes information is this classic research example of Kiki and Booba. Because if you ask people... If I give you two words, kiki and booba, can you tell me which one is sharp and which one is round? The majority of people will say kiki is sharp and booba is round. Mm. And it's interesting that our brain hears certain sounds and certain syllables and decides that it wants to make associations of its own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's actually one of the uh, fundamental bases of, of enhancing your creativity as well. So I think that there are actually a lot of exercises that people can practice if they want to practice that creativity. I don't think it's just about being born with something. Some people are born with something more than others, but I think you can definitely learn that.
2: Well, it's also interesting what you're saying. I'm thinking about some of the research that that I end up talking about with emotional intelligence, that a lot of the, almost all the key aspects of someone in the top 10% fall in, you know, this emotional intelligence, understanding yourself, imagining yourself managing yourself, understanding others, managing others, except for one cognitive skill. This is some of the work of Daniel Goleman, is is finding patterns and seeing kind of a, a connection in things, which is exactly what you're saying now, that you can really, that cognitive skill, you can really practice and get better at.
4: Absolutely. And I, and I actually think you can also get better at the emotional skills as well. Oh, yeah. But, I think they all, they all take time, but I agree. I think this, this idea of finding patterns is, is particularly helpful um, because, because the more you practice it, the more you're able to put yourself in that particular sphere. And you see this a lot you know, in children. Children are just so uh, active and curious, and you know, they'll look at one thing, they'll look at another thing, and nobody says, hey, how come you're so silly? Um, and I think we need to just let go of some of our fears of being silly, and become more exploratory because I think it adds a whole other dimension of creativity.
2: That's great. Well, I love that word, ex- ex- the exploratory process. See, that's good. Well, we're going to go to our our last uh, break, and this is Leadership Development News, and we'll be right back. Mm-hmm.
1: The business community's first choice in internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
5: Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process Books and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066.
1: You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions for these noted experts, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790.
2: Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with Dr. Srini Pile, and he has a book, Your Brain in Business, The Neuroscience of of Great Leaders. And before we... uh, Jump into the next topic because I, I want to uh, talk to you about how come so many business leaders have affairs. You know, is there a connection between being a great leader and being horny in the brain? I'm sure that will get people's attention. But maybe give us your website before you get into that just so people have that and if they want to get more information from you and your work. Sure. The,
4: the website is neurobusinessgroup.com. It's N-E-U-R-O
2: business group, all one word, dot com. Great. All right. So, so why do so many business leaders have affairs? Is there something based in, in brain science with that?
4: Well, you know, there, there, it's actually it's an issue we could talk for an entire hour about, but sure. just sort of one element of that. Um, when you look at the brain substrates that are responsible for creativity and creative intelligence, um, one of the there's a part of the frontal lobe that gets activated um, that um, that's an important part of the creative process. So people who are deeply intelligent and who are great leaders often have this part of their brain engaged. Um, If you then look at lesion studies of that same region um, that is in places where people have that region damaged, um, what you find is people exhibit behaviors like disinhibition, sexual indiscretion. um, And so one Hmm. uh, one of the theories around this is that when people... Get themselves into the flow and they get themselves into a creative and innovative space, they're not really breaking all the time and they're essentially allowing themselves to be in the flow state. And the problem with the flow state is that you can sometimes be on a slippery slope and then slip into disinhibition and sexual indiscretion.
2: Hmm. So with a lot
4: of leaders, Um, And uh, and I I think, you know, I've certainly seen this in a lot of extremely deep-thinking people. Uh, There is this this feeling of uh, of intellectual freedom, which then gets translated into the sexual freedom, which often is unfortunate for a lot of people. Um, And so I think that knowing this ahead of time can be helpful. Um, And and I think it's important to really work with leaders around this, because there are some people who do the opposite. They're so afraid of being on the slippery slope that they actually keep themselves from their creative selves. And I think the more understanding and human we can be about this, and the more that we can understand that we can do whatever we can to tolerate this, the better position we 'll be in because there 's a lot of there 's a lot of there 's a lot of idiosyncrasy in greatness, and I think the whole idea to expect everybody to always be within a norm is is absurd, um, and it 's certainly not true of most great leaders; most great leaders have something idiosyncratic about them now it doesn 't make their particular behavior is right. It doesn't mean anything about whether, you know, one should or should not condone those behaviors if you're in that situation. But what it does mean is that there often are mechanisms that are outside of our, our immediate control when we are engaged in processes that deeply intellectually.
2: So that's yeah, very interesting. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is, um, as you were speaking, this disinhibition. And one of the things I know from some of the research of of Matthew Lieberman and and others around emotional regulation, you know, is that this uh, emotional regulation is a limited capacity and that it may, without ways to recharge, get burned up during the day. And so you you can't put the brakes on anymore. Um, And I'm wondering how that may tie into what you're saying around the creativeness that that, – you know, they're able to accentuate all these positive things. And would the brakes be off more as a a consequence? As a consequence of? Just kind of the creative flow, and, you know, they're not inhibited. So the brakes are, in a sense, the brakes are off, you know, of of emotional regulation. Yes, absolutely.
4: Because in those particular states, people are in the flow, and so I think you're absolutely right. I think that because the brakes are off, they're in the flow, and then they don't quite know how to negotiate that. Because part of what they're saying is if I slam on the brakes, yeah. I'm going to get out of my flow state as well. So how do I, how do, I do both of those things at the That's same time? There is a way to do that. It's just challenging, and it's important to know ahead of time.
2: It's so, yeah, so you have some control. And have you found that also, some of that research, that emotional regulation has a limited capacity, unless somehow you recharge?
4: It, it does. You know, I think burnout is a huge issue that we don't address nearly enough. Um, and I think that um, that a lot of... And people think burnout is simply only when you can't get out of bed and you're feeling totally exhausted, but the reality is that burnout occurs in stages. And in the earliest stages, there are things like when you have to smile with a fake smile, there are things like uh, feeling a little bit frustrated, feeling a little bit keyed up on edge, feeling like mm-hmm. you are emotionally pushed a little bit beyond your boundaries and you can't deal with that. Those are some of the earlier signs of, of burnout. And I think that when people... Are in that state, it affects their emotion regulation. Then they don't have the power, the strength to regulate themselves. And so, exactly what you're pointing okay. out. Sometimes it's
2: burnout. Yeah. They... Okay, so we got enough time. for Maybe one last question, just around. Um, you said earlier around execution of uh, of things. You know, how can managers and leaders increase commitment? We probably got about another minute or so.
4: Sure. Well, so in terms of. In terms of commitment, uh, one of the things we know is that commitment is increased if we increase left frontal cortical activation. And in your brain and business, what I discuss is what are some of the ways you can increase left frontal cortical activation in order to increase your commitment to a task to accelerate the strategy.
2: And what would be one or two examples?
4: So one example uh, has to do with imagery because we know that imagery is an example of something that can actually activate the action brain uh, and can increase your commitment because it starts the action at a sub-threshold level.
2: Okay, great. And I know the other thing I got from your book is just this positive anticipation, you know, which is kind of the positive psychology and, and appreciative inquiry, the positive anticipation, does that also activate the uh, left frontal cortex?
4: Um, I, I think, if, I mean, theoretically, it could just from reflecting on the pathways. I think, mm-hmm. that, uh, I think that appreciative inquiry will probably diminish uh, the amygdala activation and will probably release the frontal lobe,
2: okay. including
4: the anterior cingulate and the prefrontal cortex.
2: Yeah. Well, this is great. You know, maybe we'll have to have you back because it sounds like you've got your wealth of information. And, and on Leadership development News, you know, one of, our, one of our things that we like to focus on is this, what's new on the brain neuroscience. So thank you so much, Dr. P. A., for, for being here. And your website for folks who want to go to it is NeuralBusinessGroup.com. That's correct. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, It was great. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to
1: Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers, with your hosts, Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you gained some great ideas and inspiration on how to elevate your leadership skills. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel.